welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast hosted by Holly Hughes with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency of the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from our directors, Dr. Trevor Smith and Dr. Greg Hodges, as they recap 2020. Even with a global pandemic, this year did not slow down for the division. Stay tuned as we discuss all of the exciting and unexpected events and programs DPI had to tackle this year. When you travel, by land, sea, or air, ask, can I bring it, and declare agricultural items. With your help, we could safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey, and remember, don't pack a pest. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've uh, been on the podcast, but we are here to do a 2020 recap. We did a 2019 recap last year, and we've had so much going on that we decided to do one again. We are joined here with Dr. Trevor Smith, our division director, and new to the podcast is Dr. Greg Hodges, our assistant director. Greg, thank you for joining us today. It's truly my pleasure. Good, I'm glad. (laughs) Well, we have had quite an eventful 2020, to say the least. I think every major news story has intersected with DPI in some way, and we're just going to talk about a few of those today. Sounds good. Okay, which do you want to start out with? What do you think is the most... uh, entertaining oh they're all entertaining (laughs) yeah i would say um why don't we start with the most unexpected and completely unanticipated which was the unsolicited seeds yeah which um i think most everybody's probably familiar with at this point which is which was a new term to me a brushing scam Mm -hmm. was what it ended up being but this was people, people all over the United States, but also Canada, Australia, and, and Europe that were receiving packages of seeds from China, sometimes Southeast Asia, and not having ordered them, not knowing why they were receiving them, uh, needed guidance on what to do about it. Now, luckily in this case, I was gone <laughs> on Lucky vacation you. when this actually hit, so I'll kind of hand that off to to Greg uh, to kind of take us through it, but he and Christina certainly uh, had to deal with the lion's share that, that that first week when these just started pouring in. I tell you, it was it was truly a eye-opening event. Like you said, Trevor, nothing that we would ever expect, nothing that we would even comprehend as a possibility, and yet here it was on our doorstep, and it was like a whirlwind, a storm that hit us, and we were right in the middle of it. People were calling calling the Capitol, they were calling uh, news channels. What is this with these seeds? What does it mean? Are the seeds safe? Are, the, are they exotic weed seeds? What, what are they exactly? 
And uh, we did. Immediately, the division mobilized. We started having conversations. We actually had conversations with uh, uh, Osama Elissi with the USDA and, and trying to find out from the USDA's perspective what is going on and how do we respond to this and coordinating with our uh, federal counterparts in the state. who Who's going to actually gather up the seeds, which actually a lot of it ended up being us. And we actually coordinated with UF as well, too. There was a ton of coordination and a lot uh, came through uh, Christina Chitty and, and, and her office, just tons of effort. I think we ended up with, and Holly, you'll probably remember the numbers better than me, but right around 2,500 or so right. total uh, calls that came in yep. and it, it, it was fast paced and the people were calling every day wanting to know what is this and it wasn't just seeds. People were getting spoons, they were getting toys, they were getting the little uh, Hand spinner uh, things. The fidget spinners. The fidget spinners. Yeah. I think we had the uh, glitter glow powder. Glow that, powder. That got people really concerned. And yeah. then obviously a white powder. Right. They got a powder in the mail. That 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 jumped it up to a whole nother level. So yeah. it, it just, it ballooned pretty quick. But it went pretty, pretty good for us. We coordinated with UF. We had some of their extension centers set up as drop-off sites. We could go pick up samples. Some of our inspectors were picking up samples. And then we would coordinate that and... Uh, take that over to the USDA. Yeah. So it was, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Trevor, but we've had a few people inquiring about these seeds even recently, a couple of times. Yeah, it's it's definitely tailed off, but I still, it, one of the interesting things was, it was nice enough of uh, the commissioner's office to give my name and my email address <laughs> as, the, as the person to contact about this. So at one time, I mean, I had, I was getting 60 or 70 emails a day of course, I would pass that on to um, to the helpline, and they would follow up. But um, yeah, I still get maybe one or two emails a week about somebody's receiving unsolicited seeds. But you know, speaking of your emails, that that made me think of one of the great things that came out of this is how quickly uh, we were able to set up a website, right? So people could mm-hmm. submit that way. We use the technology at hand during during this COVID time. Right. To, to get this done, and we're very efficient at it. So it's uh, we didn't miss a beat here. Yeah, and we probably need to kind of send a shout-out to all the folks that helped, too. I mean, it wasn't just a helpline. It wasn't just PIO. It was... Yeah, the inspectors were such a huge help out in the field. Our clerical staff yes. all pitched in to try and return calls and, yep. and answer emails. And, and we do appreciate the efforts from the USDA and oh, UF. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a, definitely a, a good team effort. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I remember coming in, I think it hit in like June time, I think so, around yeah, right. sometime in the middle of the summer, and I um, I pulled up my email, and I had almost a thousand emails overnight. I'm like, oh my gosh, what in the world has <laughs> happened? But like you said, we all pulled together, and I think that's a great example of what we all do every time something like this happens, mm-hmm. um, pulling together to get the job done. So, yeah, still some that are kind of trickling in here and there, but it's nice to see that people are at least getting the message and the information to report it, and, you know, we're always appreciative of their concern to protect Florida agriculture and the environment and to not plant anything that they don't, you know, can't identify. So, yes, that was definitely a whirlwind experience to just add to the craziness of 2020. I guess that kind of leads into our second kind of big mystery, which was Asian giant hornet. Mm-hmm. Even though that wasn't in Florida, it was clear across the country. 
Um, we've still had people submitting photos for identification and that was just a crazy kind of overnight phenomenon that happened as well. Well, it's amazing uh, what a sensational name like Murder Hornet will do for the media. Yeah. You know, they once they pick that up, man, that just, that took off. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's another one where I think some, there's some good that came out of it, which is just like you mentioned with unsolicited seats. There's a lot of concerned citizens in Florida that were calling because they really thought that the, there was this pest out there. And of course, the concern is that they will attack and feed on honeybees. And everybody already knows our honeybees are kind of on the ropes with various diseases and pests and, and just all kinds of issues. Uh, so a lot of concerned citizens. But the problem is we have several wasps in the state of Florida, one in particular, the cicada killer, that looks very similar and is very large and kind of scary looking. And um, yeah, a lot of the calls in have revolved around that particular wasp. But like you said, it's only in Washington state. A lot has happened since that story hit. They have yep. actually found uh, an active breeding population in Washington. At that time, they only had a few individual specimens. Uh, now they've actually found it and they have eradicated that population. That doesn't mean it's still not present in, in Washington state, but they have uh, actually dealt with that. But they actually used a really cool technology to find that population. They actually put a little transmitter. They actually caught a live uh, hornet, oh, wow. put a transmitter on it and released it, and then tracked it back to its nest. And that was how they ended up finding that and, and eradicated that nest. I hadn't nest. heard that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's how it was done. So, and that's another one that Greg and I were talking the other day about non-traditional pathways for the introduction of pests. You know, everybody knows things come in on plant material. They know they come in and produce. Uh, but in this case, they think it's used cars from Asia is actually how the, um, the Asian giant hornet showed up. And there's actually two locations in North America. One is in Vancouver. They've been introduced in Vancouver and then in Washington. And their best guess at this point is they came in on used cars from Asia. Wow. So who'd have thought? I know. So a weird way to, to see something like that introduced. But yeah, that's another one we were completely unprepared for in the, in the sense that there was nothing in the news. And then the next day, it was everywhere in the news. And we had emails and phone calls. And uh, the helpline had to adapt instantly to it. And yep. we produced uh, various outreach materials, some really cool yeah. ones, too. Yeah. I yeah, think the poster's beautiful. I yeah. mean, that with the bullseye and radiating, radiating out, showing the different sizes of the things it could potentially be confused with. Uh, Great. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too. This is a great new transition into just the number of pest introductions this year in general. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know we I've talked about this before on the podcast that we average between two and three new uh, pest establishments in Florida every single month. That's not interceptions. That is actually, uh, you know, a pest or a disease that is introduced and establishes in the state. And yeah, we're well on our way to another, um, you know, above average year. We're looking at at least 25 new records this year already, and we still have enough time left in December. I can assure you there will be a few more. Don't so. say that. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the most interesting ones, Greg, is probably the uh, horntailed snail. That's that's not real common that we have newly introduced snails 
not since the giant African snail, I think was probably the last. And how about how we got uh, informed about this one? It was actually a, a, a young person who is a snail enthusiast, if you will, and uh, does neighborhood walks and just looking at different things and saw something like, that doesn't look right. Sent it up for identification, and lo and behold, here, here we are. Yeah. yeah. And the good thing about this one is it's easily identifiable. It's small. It's much smaller than a giant African snail. Uh, but it, that little horn on its tail, uh, that there's only one other snail in the state of Florida that has that, and it looks very, very different. Mm -hmm. So it makes for easy identification. But that was one, uh, just like every new pest, we had to evaluate right off the bat. Uh, is this something we can do something about? Is it for eradication? Is it for control? Is it going to be a pest at all? And we kind of determined that, yes, we needed to take some regulatory action. So we instantly pivoted, got some of our giant African snail team on, you know, on the case of the, the horntail snail, and the rest is history at this point. We found it uh, all over Miami-Dade and, uh, and in some of our nurseries. The good news is uh, the, we've already started research here. In fact, this is, if, if you can find anywhere else in the world where you can have an introduction of an exotic snail, and within three days, you already have a population in your quarantine facility where you're doing research. And in two weeks, you've already determined what the best molluscicides are. I'll give you my next paycheck. Because <laughs> there's nowhere else in the world where that kind of thing can happen that fast. I mean, we were literally able to come up with a solution to a new snail pest within weeks. And that's, that's really to our benefit because even though this is not something we're gonna be able to eradicate from the state of Florida, we will most certainly be able to eradicate it from the nursery industry uh, because these molluscicides are so effective. And, and also that we've determined the biology, pinpointed that down. We know the life cycle now, really. What we're gonna see here in Florida, how many eggs does it lay? How long does it take them to develop? Mm -hmm. To help better pinpoint when to time these, uh, uh, timing of the use of molluscicides. So it's just great work here. Like, like you said, Trevor, where else can you go where you get a new pest and basically you break out a whole new playbook. You're creating a playbook to deal with it, and we can do that right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so that's a good opportunity just to kind of an, another shout-out to our methods folks, not not just the plant inspection staff that are down there in the giant African snail folks that are on this program, but also all that stuff that goes on in the background with methods, trying to come up with better ways uh, to deal with these things. So. Uh, so that program, uh, we're, we're currently in the middle of it, uh, but I think uh, we're making great progress. We've already had, I don't know, maybe a dozen nurseries that were positive. They've, we've cleaned them up, they've eradicated the snail, and they're out from under quarantine now and, and back to business as usual. So uh, we've got a few others that are still under quarantine, but I, they'll, they'll fall into line here soon too. We'll get them where they need to go. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned this is a kind of average number of pest introductions that we've seen, you know, in the last few years mm -hmm. because travel has been so limited uh, because of, you know, the coronavirus. How do we know how they're introduced uh, at our ports or in the environment? I mean, it's, we'd have to speculate, but one thing that didn't slow down was trade. Okay. So we've actually had even maybe more phytosanitary certificates written this year than we've had in past years for export. Okay. 
So, but on the other side of things, we've had more imports and maybe that's because more people are ordering things online and through the mail and, and other ways that have to be shipped into ports, but also mail. I don't have any statistics on that, but I guarantee this year there's going to be more deliveries by mail to people than in the history of this country. And that could be how a lot of things were moving in too. I mean, it's again, all speculation, but yeah, trade didn't slow down for a second. Yeah. That's that. That would be my guess why why the introductions didn't slow down. And two, one thing too, with people staying home, a lot of people staying home with COVID, they're paying more attention to their plants and around their surroundings, and they're noticing things. Some a lot of times it's common stuff. Stuff's already here, but occasionally, even like with the horntail snail, I think a couple of our outlying finds were because people saw this and called the helpline and said, "Hey, I think I've." spotted your horntail snail and, and they were right on the money. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, more eyes are actually out there when you're not, you know, when you're working from home or you're not working anymore, you're doing a lot of work out in the yard, something, especially a little snail like that. What are the oh. chances in normal circumstances somebody's going to notice a little tiny snail like that that's not an expert and, and realize that's something yeah. out of the ordinary? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of people taking up new hobbies, so. Oh, yeah. It's always nice to have the public's help on those kinds of things. They're kind of always on top of it for us. Absolutely, which kind of leads us right into the Giant African Land Snail program, which, uh, you know, if we hadn't had the public's help on that, ne we never would have achieved what we're about to achieve. That's right. I mean, we're less than a year away from eradication, declaring the snail eradicated in the state of Florida and in, in North America. So... Right now, we just, I want to say a few weeks ago, we actually decommissioned another core. And we are actually down to eight active cores now. That's down from our total of, what were we at, the 32 at the height of the program? And I think they're evaluating uh, two next week. So by the end of this year, we should be down to six active cores. And like I said, before the end of next year, We'll be able to declare eradication. Right now, targeting August or September. So it's coming. Yeah, been a long time coming. But that's a great success story. The second time we've eradicated mm -hmm. giant African land snail. The only place on earth that's ever eradicated the giant African land snail, and we're going to do it twice. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's one that we'll definitely, hopefully as things loosen up uh, with COVID and, and, and things next year, hopefully we can have a good good-sized media event like we've mm -hmm. talked about over the years to uh, to really celebrate that because, as you say, it's a long time coming. 2011 is when this program started. And it's monumental. I mean, just think about when it started, Trevor. I mean, you and I both were in different positions and spent time on emergency program. Down there on our hands and knees with the inspectors picking up snails, and uh, here we are all these years later. Yeah. What, 170,000 or so about, snails? Yep. Uh, like, wow. Yeah. yeah, and I've said it before on some of these podcasts, you know, there were definitely some days down there when we were on a property where there's literally thousands of snails. They're all over the walls. They're all in the bushes. They're underneath every board you lift, thinking, man. And I've got a good story. This is going to be tough. Me and Tyson Emery, chief of our plant and apiary inspection, we're at a property. And Tyson goes over to a house, or in a house, and he goes over to a gutter, and he goes, oh, whatever's anything in the gutter, and he just kind of shakes it. And it was like the <laughs> slot machine. Giant African snails were falling out of the gutter. That's right. Uh, you had to be there to see it. It was incredible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. That's, how, that's how thick they were early on. Yep. I could not imagine. I could not imagine. 
but we were able to, um, Marcus Jones and our detector dog team were able to kind of help out and transition mm-hmm. those gals, detector dogs, and help train them on the horntail snail. So it wasn't just our inspectors um, that were identifying them, but we were having some canine help as well. Yeah, and that really kind of shows their flexibility. And, and I think that's really opened up some possibilities for future funding also to show that these dogs can very easily be trained from one species, like the giant African snail, to another species in a matter of weeks. And they were actually able to do that. Marcus and his team were actually able to do that with our USDA counterparts via teams and, and other and other techniques because they couldn't travel down from Noonan's, which is where they have their canine uh, training center. The USDA folks couldn't travel at all. So they were actually able to certify those dogs on the horntail snail, just working with our counterparts via Teams and Zoom. Yeah. And that was kind of cool too. Yeah, they logged, the um, the detector dog teams logged over 200 hours of training in order to be 100% certified in horntail snail. Well, we've also got some new conversations that'll be, uh, we're going to be having with USDA soon on expanding our canine program. So uh, nothing's written in stone. There's no funding set aside yet, but we're looking at all kinds of possibilities here, especially with uh, U.S. Postal Service. We've been focused, uh, other than our giant African land snail dogs, we also have dogs working in our parcel facilities, but we've focused on FedEx and UPS. Um, we're looking at expanding that and, and, and going into the Postal Service facilities as well. That's what the canines do in California, and we'd like to, to beef up our program as well. But that's, that's huge. I mean, that's one, again, I know I've talked about the canines. I like bragging about them a lot. It's just amazing what they can accomplish in the shortest period of time, what would take surveyors hours, days, weeks, they can do in minutes. Yeah. They can literally walk through facilities, and if there's a snail in there, they're going to find it within a minute, where we could go through, you know, something like, especially I'm thinking of like tile warehouses and things like that. Again, non-traditional pathways. Most people don't realize we get all kinds of pests brought into the state of Florida on tile. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is then places, Italy's, this is where we've had a lot of uh, our interceptions are from Italy. They'll set down a pallet out in the field. They'll fill it up with um, tile, and then they'll just leave it out there for a couple of weeks. And then when they're ready to ship, they go out and they shrink wrap the whole thing just like it is right there put it on a ship and send it away. Well, they shrink wrap everything that was in the hiding in that tile is now coming, coming with the tile. Wow. Um, and, but those are areas where you'll have a warehouse with hundreds and thousands of pallets of tile. And trying to look inside there and find them is almost impossible, but a dog can walk through that facility in a day. Wow. And can identify woodborne beetles or snails or anything that uh, they've been trained on. So, yeah, I, so I think that I, the sky is the limit for that program in Florida, I think. Another big program that kind of uh, ramped up this year was our hemp cultivation. We've had almost 800 applications processed through our permitting unit. And I know that a couple of our employees were able to go witness an, our, uh, an inaugural harvest um, down in Hudson, Florida, not that long ago. 
And so that's also a program that I think a lot of farmers and producers are looking into as an alternative crop. And I'm really happy with the success of that uh, program, especially so early in its, um, you know, planting. Yeah, I mean, I think our permitting unit has done a great job and, and Brian Benson kind of at the, the helm, they've done a fantastic job. I mean, we implemented a brand new program and we just put this law in place a year ago. Right. And then from there, we've already got a program in place where, what, no more than a week, maybe two weeks to get your permit. And that, that was only in the very beginning when we had hundreds of them coming in at the same time. We still turned them around within a week in most cases. Now it could be hours. It, it, permit comes in within hours, we've approved it. So I think the, the fact that this went so smoothly as a brand new program, it's just a testament to planning and then our folks here at DPI. And, and, and Holly Bell, the right. cannabis director mm-hmm. in, uh, up in Tallahassee. I mean, she's done an awesome job as well. So doesn't hurt that the commissioner's always out there promoting it and um, and keeping it in the limelight. So, you know, Trevor, we're kind of moving forward. We're, our science group, our diagnostics group, is actually looking at some of the pests that might potentially be uh, impacting the crop and maybe trying to put out some publications in support of the industry of how to identify these things and, and also in conjunction with UF on how to maybe control these things. So that'll be something coming forward from our group. Yeah, and that's been a great collaboration there. That's, um, we've worked, I mean, from the very beginning, even before there was a, a hemp program and we were still in the pilot program, uh, which was prior to having the law uh, allowing commercial growing of hemp, uh, we've been just w- working hand-in-hand with, with IFAS and UF, and, and they've done a really good job of trying to develop varieties or, or identify varieties that'll grow well in Florida. But surprisingly, we've had very few issues this year with farmers with hemp that went over the 0.3, for the 0.3, yeah. 0.03, 0. 0.3. Some percentage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, THC level. Uh, we've had very few, and, and THC tends to go up in cannabis when it's under stress. So that could be pest, it could be drought, it could be heat, it could be cold. But that being said, of most of the harvests, harvests that have happened this year, we've only had a few that went over, and it was none of, none of them were really large acreages. So it wasn't people losing lots of money. It was usually growers that were kind of trying different things anyway to see if, if they could get a good production out of certain varieties. Mm-hmm. But... That was kind of a surprise for me. I was worried trying to grow this in Florida that they would really stress out the plants and we'd have a lot of issues with THC, but so far, so good. Yeah. Well, we've had a very busy year. I think we've covered a lot, and I think that this just proves the scope of what we do at DPI as well. Um, We kind of have our hand in a little bit of everything, but we do it you know, a very good job of handling everything that kind of is thrown our way. And we're so proud of all of our employees and the way that they've adapted, especially during COVID. I mean, that can really kind of throw a wrench in things and how much we're interacting with the public, but we stayed safe and we're able to still continue to do a really good job of protecting Florida Ag. 
Yeah, and I've said it before, there's a reason that our employees are considered essential. And we just talked about just a fraction of those reasons that, that you know, came up this year. Uh, but yeah, everybody's come together um, beautifully. And like you said, we've tried, we've done everything we've done. Safety's been our number one concern through all of this for, for our employees as well as the public and anyone we interact with. Uh, but it has been incredibly successful through a very, very difficult time. So, yeah, once again, I would say our, our DPI employees have just performed way above and beyond any anyone's expectation. And definitely adapted to all kinds of new technologies that they've never truly used before in order to do this. And it's it's been great, and we're going we're gonna to enjoy the fruits of that going forward, I'm sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for helping us recap all of these um, crazy times in 2020, all these fun events that we got to kind of deal with and handle. Um, I hope everybody has a great holiday season and a great start to 2021. I'm sure a lot of people are excited to close the 2020 chapter and in their book. Um, But as always, we just do a lot of stuff and we do it well. And it's been a great year at DPI. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, happy holidays, everybody. Absolutely. Happy holidays. Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at fdax.gov. This podcast was produced by Holly Hughes.